should be a bulletin outline in every bulletin. You can follow along. On Christmas Day, 1969, in Hollywood, California, a man named Arthur Blessett decided to start walking around the world. But he didn't just start walking around with the usual hiker's gear. The item that he is most known for carrying around with him is a 12-foot wooden cross weighing 45 pounds. Arthur, who's often accompanied by his wife, Denise, who also carries the cross at times, has been walking for the past 44 years. Thankfully, the cross does have a wheel attached to it. Makes it easier. According to the MSN uh, Travel website, Arthur has persevered despite having had four minor strokes, been jailed 24 times for non-criminal charges, was nearly stoned in Morocco, and nearly executed by a firing squad in Nicaragua. He has walked through 315 countries, walking more than 38,000 miles. He holds the Guinness Book of World Records for traveling the greatest distance around the world by foot. To get some insight into his motivation, here's what Arthur says on his website. The cross stands alone as the most controversial symbol in world history. Without question, it has also been and is abused, misused, and worshipped. To some, it is a symbol of terror as used by the KKK and also by Christian crusaders against the Muslims in war. The cross is popular among believers and non-believers as an ornament to cross rings, cross earrings, cross necklaces, etc. The sign of the cross is made by some before ball games or sports, by some before battle, by some at meals, and by many in church. Still quoting, cross carrying has never been viewed in a true historical sense as a pleasure or in early years, a work of art, or an object of beauty. People died horrible, bloody, agonizing, tortured deaths on crosses. Yet, the modern cross is cleaned up. Gone is the blood, the smell of death, the ring of hammer against nail as it tears through the skin. In the days of the cross, people would see one and vomit, look away in disgust or ridicule it. Today, we say, oh, how lovely. Where did you buy yours? Do you see how shallow we've become? You don't buy a cross, you carry a cross, Jesus said. End quote. So Arthur and Denise walk around carrying their cross that is twice as tall as they are to live out Jesus' words for his followers, to take up their cross and follow him. Maybe some of you would love to do something radical like that. Maybe join them. I could see somebody joining the, one of the Leesburg holiday parades and carrying a cross down King Street. But for most of us, we need to figure out how to take up the cross in our lives. In a less literal way, but 
no less real way. In a way that honors Jesus' command. That is somehow linked with the commands around it. Denying yourself and following Jesus. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. And read the entire passage that surrounds these commands. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father God, You know my heart. You know how much I cling to my life and how little I deny myself. And You know the hearts of everyone else here. Teach us your ways. Lord, challenge us. Transform us through your word. Open our minds and our hearts to hear from you. Amen. Now there's a lot packed in to these eight verses. We could probably spend multiple sermons trying to tease out the implications of these hard sayings of Jesus. But let's begin with an idea that Jesus is just starting to get the disciples to understand. And that is that there is no salvation without a cross. Verses 21 through 23, there is no salvation without a cross. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is really the first time in Matthew that Jesus has put before his disciples so starkly the idea that he has a path to follow 
that involves suffering and death. And you can just imagine their initial reactions, bewilderment and opposition. And of course, Peter takes it upon himself to to pull Jesus aside and say, this can't happen. If you remember last week's sermon or just the verses before this, Peter has just given a brilliant insight into who Jesus is. And he follows that up now with a stunning, total failure to understand what Jesus was doing. Jesus goes from commending him in verse 17, backing up a little bit, blessed are you, Simon, to rebuking him. Get behind me, Satan, in verse 23. And it's really fascinating that Jesus has just told Peter in verse 17 that God the Father has revealed to him Jesus' true identity and nature. And now Jesus attributes Peter's ideas to someone else, the enemy. Right? Peter quickly switches from being the mouthpiece of God to the mouthpiece of Satan. In a few short verses. We don't know the timing necessarily. Peter, whose name means rock, is now a stumbling block. Jesus calls him a hindrance. And it's really interesting, the Greek word there is scandalon, where we get our word scandal. The stumbling block or the hindrance. And what's really fascinating is that word is actually used of Jesus in a positive way, in a sense, in 1 Corinthians one twenty three, I should have put it in your outline, but it's talking about how Jesus is the scandalon or the stumbling block to Jews and Gentiles. But in a good way. A stumbling block that they have to deal with. Peter is a hindrance. A stumbling block that gets in the way of Jesus' mission. And Jesus will not have anyone derail his mission. He says, get out of my way. Get behind me. Follow. Don't block the way. And maybe, perhaps, Jesus is alluding to Satan's temptations when he came to Jesus while Jesus was fasting. Remember? And he tempted him to end his fast and to be given the whole world, and to show off his power. Remember those temptations. In essence, Satan wanted Jesus to step off the path of humility, obedience, and suffering that God had him on, and to take the triumphal route that didn't involve suffering. And Jesus didn't give in there in the wilderness, and he's not going to give in now. Because he knows that his path leads to the cross. Verse 21 shows that he had a very strong picture and understanding of what would be happening to him. Jesus knows that if he listens to Peter in the satanic voice of temptation to avoid the suffering ahead, that he will not die for our sins. And we will not truly be reconciled 
to the Father. But just as there is no salvation without a cross, so there is no Christian life, thriving, maturing Christian life without a cross. Verse 24, really the heart of the passage. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus has the right to call us to these three, three things, denying ourselves, taking up the cross, following, because he did all three in his life. Right? He denied himself. Philippians 2 says that he emptied himself. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. He took up his cross. He hasn't yet literally in our, where we are in Matthew, but we know at the end of his life, he takes up his cross. But even every step of the way, Jesus was taking on his cross figuratively. And third, he followed. He followed his Father's path, completely subordinating himself to the will of God the Father. God the Son followed. And we see this first command, deny yourself. Because self-denial is at the heart of biblical Christianity. Denying ourselves is completely contradictory to every other impulse we ever have. By nature, we want to please ourselves, to indulge ourselves, to make ourselves known, to be in control of ourselves and of our lives. And to deny yourself is to go against those impulses and seek a greater good. But Jesus doesn't just tell us to deny ourselves and then just sit around and do nothing, right? Denial of one thing leads to embracing something else. And he doesn't just tell us to deny ourselves and then dedicate ourselves to the good of humanity or something very vague like that. No, he gives us a very explicit thing to do after we deny ourselves. Take up. A cross. Now, what does taking up a cross mean? We've already seen you can do it very literally, like Arthur Blessed. But how do we do that in our lives, in our actions? Well, I've, I've found a few things. This not comprehensive by any means. I'm sure if I had another week, I could add a few things. But a few things for you to consider about carrying, taking up your cross. Number one, setting your mind on the things of God, not the things of man. Not a brilliant insight from me. I'm just reversing what Jesus rebuked Peter for in verse 23, right? Taking up your cross is taking up God's rule and direction for your life. Setting our minds on the things of man is, is to have a limited Short-term view of things versus having an eternal perspective. 
trying to see things how God sees them. Number two, taking up your cross is very simply stop trying to make a name for yourself. I think so much of what we do in life is to get people to think better of us, right? I mean, our, our conversations are to show how smart or witty or successful we are. I, I've been on both sides of those conversations. Our motivations for achieving, succeeding, is for people to call us great, to be loved and affirmed. But it's pretty hard to pursue affluence and fame with a cross strapped to your back. Taking up your cross has to involve immersing yourself in the Scriptures. Number three, it's hard to know God's will for you if you haven't read His Word. The Bible is God's revealed will, and any decision you make needs to be grounded in it. We could, again, talk much more on any of these points. But number four, taking up your cross is preparing yourself for death. And I put in parentheses, or lesser things. You'll see why. Carrying a cross in Jesus' day meant that you were on your way to die. Right? It marked you out. You were ready. You were on the path. Have you ever heard a story of a martyr and thought to yourself, am I strong enough to die for my faith? Christians today in Islamic countries, or countries like North Korea, that's not a hypothetical, right? They are faced with governments or followers of other religions who will point a gun at them or put a sword to their throat and tell them to renounce their faith in Christ. If that happened to me, would I be willing to die for the truth of the gospel? Come on, Dave. We live in America. America. No one's going to kill me for my faith. You're probably right. You're probably right, but if we set our expectations on the idea that our faith will get us killed or intensely persecuted, then anything less could be a relief. Hey, they only fired me for my beliefs. They didn't kill me. They only burned down my home. They didn't take my life. Lord, thank you that I was only falsely accused in a newspaper editorial. Whatever it is, if we're ready to die for our faith, then smaller persecutions will not shock us. Conversely, if we expect our lives to be happy and conflict-free, these things will be a shock. Any opposition will be a shock. But after all, if you're carrying a cross, don't be too surprised when someone wants to nail you up on it. 
according to, I told my Sunday school class I was going to use this, uh, according to John Fox's book of Christian Martyrs, the Apostle Andrew was ordered by Roman officials to stop preaching and teaching about Jesus. This was after scriptures were finished. And he records that Andrew, of course, refused to stop preaching Jesus. And he was condemned to be crucified. And as he approached the place where he was to die, he said, O cross most welcome and longed for, with a willing mind, joyfully and desirously, I come to you. I mean, I hope that I can face death like that. And if you are under the impression, the delusion that the Christian life would be always exciting and fulfilling and that all of your problems would be solved and you would avoid pain, let me be the first to apologize that you have been sold a bill of goods. But we're all a bit like Peter, aren't we? We want the benefits of Christ. Forgiven sins, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the assurance of eternal life, the peace that passes understanding, true purpose and answers. Awesome benefits, all true. We want them. But often we don't want the difficulties of Christ. We don't want to have to identify with Christ in His sufferings. But it's a package deal. And what Peter didn't realize or know then, he caught up later in his life. Listen to 1 Peter 4, 12-14. Probably written 20 years or so later, maybe 30. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Peter, church history tells us, was crucified upside down in Rome. He realized the path of suffering and followed. Now Luke 29.23 adds one word to this command, and I realize we're preaching Matthew, not Luke. But I, I need to bring this up. It says that the one addition is take up your cross daily. I don't know why Matthew doesn't say it like that. But it would be great to be able to point to a time in life where we took up the cross. Right? Oh, back in college, I took up the cross. Or, or when, when we had our first kid, I did the whole cross thing. I'm good. I did it. But I don't think Jesus is going to let us coast off of that. I don't think taking up the cross is, is just like checking off something on your bucket list, right? 
Run a marathon, check. Grand Canyon, check. Publish that story I've been working on, check. Take up my cross for a whole week for Jesus, check. No, we wake up every day and decide by our actions and our attitudes whether we're going to carry our cross that day or not. Whether we're going to lay down our own agenda and pursue His or not. All three verbs in verse 24, deny, take up, and follow are in the present tense. In other words, we must be performing them continually. And I don't think I can give you a definitive understanding of what taking up the cross looks like. Because it's going to look a little different for every person in every situation. But but carrying a cross around with you should bring perspective to everything you do from the big things like how you choose your career, how much and how hard you work, how you act in school, how you approach your marriage. I'm going to talk about self-denial. You need it in your marriage. And how you parent and how you respond to your parents, to smaller things. How you speak to a waitress, a salesperson, a mechanic. How and why you compete in sports. It's going to touch everything you do. And I've had two temptations with this sermon. One is to backpedal a little bit and say, you don't need to be too extreme, right, with this cross-carrying thing. Don't quit your job. Don't drop out of school. Something like that. Been tempted to want to backpedal and just qualify everything. But Jesus doesn't really qualify or soften the blow in these words. But I was also tempted to be a little self-serving um, to suggest that the best way to carry your cross is to volunteer with the church. Gosh, what do you know? There's a mission trip coming up. Officer training for some of you would be great. I, I can't do that. I need to avoid that because you need to wrestle with what carrying your cross looks like. You need to go home and wrestle with the Lord about whether you are denying yourself and following Him in the ways that He's called you to. Or if you need to make some changes. Maybe it is something extreme. Maybe it is something with volunteering the church. Maybe you're in the middle of a lot of sacrifice and you can't take on another one. You need to work that out with the Lord. I hear all the time some variation of Christianity's not really working for me. People maybe just having a hard time seeing much progress in their Christian life, frustrated that they're not becoming more spiritual, they're still struggling with the same sins, just 
and we're not feeling the benefits of following Jesus, they don't feel it. I don't know if you hear that much, but I'm reminded of G.K. Chesterton. I think it's in your outline even, who said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. In other words, maybe you're discouraged with the Christian life because you're not really doing it. You're not all in. That is a hard blow. Dan Doriani, a pastor, seminary professor, suggests that even though America is supposedly over 75% Christians, uh, we, can, we can understand that through three labels that he gives. Cultural Christians, convenient Christians, and committed Christians. Cultural Christians are Christians in the sense that they don't have any other box to check on the questionnaire, right? You're not Jewish or Muslim or atheist or any of those things, so you, you must be a Christian, right? They would say, yeah, we, we belong to that big church downtown. What's the name of that, honey? Cultural Christian. I've had that conversation. Convenient Christians follow Jesus when it's easy, when nothing gets in the way, when there's no opposition. But a committed Christian lives not for their own pleasure, but for the Lord. A committed Christian knows that Jesus is King and that the King can make whatever demands He wants of His subjects. The call to obey is a delight because she knows that the desperate situation she was in without Christ, the amazing things that He's done for her, and the perfect character of God. Now our king asks much of us. But he calls us to a life of cross-bearing because he knows it is the most rewarding way to live. And so Jesus immediately gives three reasons to deny yourself and take up the cross. Verses 25 through 28. Three reasons to deny yourself and take up the cross. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing who, here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now we're not going to deal with verse 28 here. I think we're going to cover that when we get to Matthew 24. But following Jesus, that main verse that we spent so much time, verse 24, deny, take up, follow, we get a series of three explanations why that will immensely 
benefits you. We have three statements that each start with the conjunction for. In verses 25, 26, 27. And again, we could probably spend a whole sermon or a lot more time. I think I've probably done a, a youth ministry talk on each one of these. But we'll go through them quickly. Verse 25 tells us that we will find true life. But is that not the most paradoxical statement you've ever heard? For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We've heard it. If you've been in the church for a long time, it stopped shocking you, I'm sure. But I wish I truly and totally understood it. And even more, I wish that I could live that out. But there's a huge link to what we've already talked about in denying ourselves, right? Setting our plans and our goals for our lives and laying those at his feet and saying, take my life, make of it what you want. That is to lose your life, to submit it to the king for his use. Verse 26 tells us that we will keep our souls. These are rhetorical questions, right? The answers implied in the question. What will it profit to gain the whole world? Nothing. What shall a man give in return for his soul? Everything. And finally, verse 27 tells us that we will be rewarded in the next life. Jesus himself will repay us according to what we've done. We are afraid to dive deep into the waters of Christian commitment because we don't really trust the Lord. We don't think our sacrifices will be worth it. If I give up buying my dream house that I can't afford, if I give up my season tickets, if I give up this huge promotion that would leave me with no time for my family, if I give up this or that worldly pleasure or any of a hundred creature comforts and idols that we crave, will God really make it worth it? And Jesus says, yes, I will. He will reward you in this life with true abundant life, and He will reward you in the life to come. I don't know what that's going to look like, but it will be worth it. Five minutes into eternity, into the afterlife, into heaven, and we will know that every sacrifice, every step of obedience was worth it. Now, I always want to remind us, because for most people, if you ask them, how do you get to heaven? We'll say some variation of, I've done enough to get there. That's just our default. Maybe it's American, maybe it's just 
humankind. And so I always need to remind us that doing anything to earn salvation is a dead end. We need to keep this straight that Jesus picked up His cross and died on it so that we would be saved. And we pick up our cross because we are already saved. We follow His lead, but we don't pick up His cross. The one that provides atonement for our sins, right? We pick up our crosses in obedience. They help us to grow in being like Christ. They help us to find our lives. We will be rewarded by our Father in heaven for the sacrifices that we make. But only Jesus giving up his life on the cross in our place earns us forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. And all those who know that they need his cross for salvation and to take up our crosses in obedience said, Amen. Take a minute to pray, church. Ask the Lord to reveal areas of your life where you need to deny yourself and for the courage to take up your cross.